following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Okay, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church tonight. Okay, here we go. First Chronicles and the 11th chapter. Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. Doesn't that sound familiar? You shall shepherd my people Israel. Verse 3, Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. But the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, You shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, Now David said, Whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first and became chief. Then David dwelt in the stronghold, therefore they called it the city of David. And he built the city around it, from the millow to the surrounding area. Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. Now these were the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had. Joshabim, the son of, of a Hakmonite, chief of the captains, he had lifted up his spear against 300, killed by him at one time. After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo the Ahohite, who was one of the three mighty men. He was with David at uh, Pasdamim. Now there the Philistines were gathered for battle, and there was a piece of ground full of barley, so the people fled from the Philistines. But they stationed themselves in the middle of that field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Now three hundred of the, I'm sorry, now three of the thirty chief men went down to the rock, uh, to David into the cave of Adullam. And the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it for me, O my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? The risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of another three. He had lifted up his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Of the three, he was more honored than the other two men. Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabziel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He had also gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a man of great height, five cubits tall. In the Egyptian's hand there was a spear like a weaver's beam, 
And he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did and won a name among the three mighty men. Indeed, he was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. Also the mighty warriors were Asahel, the brother of Joab, Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shemot, the Herorite, Helez, the Pelonite, Ira, the son of Ikesh, the Tekoite, Abiezer, the Anathothite, Sibekai, the Hushathite, Hai, the Ahohite, Maharai, the Netophathite, Heled, the son of Baana, the Netophathite, Ittai, the son of Ribai of Gibeah, of the sons of Benjamin, Beniah, the, the uh, Pirathonite, Hurai, of the brooks, uh, sorry, of the brooks of Gaash, Abiel, the Arbathite, Asmaveth, the Baharumite, Eliachba, the Shelabanite, the sons of Hashem, the Gizanite, Jonathan, the son of Shege, the Herorite, Ahiam, the son of Sakar, the Herorite, Eliphal, the son of Ur, Hefer, the Merkarathite, Ahijah, the Pelonite, Hezro, the Carmelite, Naari, the son of Ezbal, Joel, the brother of Nathan, Mibhar, the son of Hagri, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Barothite, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerab, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite, Zebab, the son of Echlai, Adina, the son of Shiza, the Reubenite, a chief of the Reubenites, and 30 with him, Hanan, the son of Ma'akah, Joshaphat, the Mithnite, Uzziah, the Ashtarathite, Shammah, the uh, and Jael, the sons of Hotham, the Ararite, Jediel, the son of Shimri, and Johai's brother, the Tizite, Eliel, the Mahavite, Jerabai, and Joshaviah, the sons of Elnaam, Ithma, the Moabite, Eliel, Obed, and Jaasiel, the Mezobite. Wow, those are tough names. What is the point of that chapter? What's that chapter all about? Why is it in the Bible? Does it matter a fellow killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day? Gives him interesting details. The point of that to talk about Benaiah's uh, valiance, his, uh, his strength, his power. But what's going on here? There's not like a hidden message. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for you to dig below uh, and find some kind of, um, oh, you know, <clears throat> tertiary level to meaning or something like that. I think it's simply this, that if you look in verse number three, these mighty men, they, well, actually the rulers of Israel came and, and they anointed King David over Israel, or David to be king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. And then you have these men, three and three and dozens and dozens of men and all these names of men who did tremendous things. I mean, think of somebody who is able enough to kill 300 men at a time. These men were standing by David's side, ensuring that the word of the Lord would come to pass. These men were valiant for the truth. They said, God told us that he's going to be the king. Whatever is humanly necessary, we're going to make sure that he is the king. You understand that? 
A guy who can go kill a lion or two massive you know, uh, army uh, guys from another country or Philistines or Egyptians or wrestle a guy's spear out of his hands, take it away from him and kill it with it. These are guys that you don't mess with. You don't mess, These are the bodyguards of the king and they're ensuring that this guy is going to be the king because God said he's going to be the king. So uh, if nothing else, you have here a record of a formidable uh, bodyguard and leadership of the army of the king, which is not going to mess around if somebody comes to goof with God's man. (laughs) Yeah, this is strength. So this is power, humanly speaking, of course. But uh, God uses that sometimes to accomplish his purposes. What's that? Which one? That we were just reading? Yeah, in 1 Chronicles. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that was First Chronicles in the 11th chapter. Uh, it seems obscure, but when you think of it in those terms, uh, I, I was just asking myself that question as I was practicing reading it earlier, and it just came to me that, you know, that's got to be part of the whole story here. You know, we don't just put, you know, random information in the Bible. Uh, this would also tend to dissuade the enemies of of Israel, here you have guys with, that, that go come with reputation. And the Philistines or the Egyptians or whatever aren't just going to come along and say, oh, these guys are going to be easy to take. No, they have some serious warriors over there in Israel, and we're not going to mess with them. So, yeah, in fact, uh, just kind of gives you the notion of uh, that, that, that old phrase, uh, peace through strength. Remember that doctrine? Oh, what a, what, a, what a wise military doctrine that is. You don't come to peace through Neville Chamberlain whiny weakness. You come to peace through strength. You make sure that you have a big enough military force in human terms that you don't have to ever use it. It's like an insurance policy. You hope you never have to use it, but you do have to put some money into it, Right? Yeah, you have to keep it up to keep the equipment up, keep the, keep the training up, keep the equipment working, keep the boats floating, you know, keep the guns shooting, all that sort of stuff. And that's peace through strength. Here you, you have something of that. These guys making sure this is going to be the status quo. Don't mess with it. This is what God has ordered to be the case. Uh, yeah, TR uh, was a very... Very, another very wise man who said that uh, you ought to walk softly but carry a very big stick. That's right. Yeah, I like that, brother. That's very good. It's a similar, it's a similar thing. But uh, appeasement always fails. It doesn't necessarily fail today or tomorrow, but down the road it will fail and you will be sorry that you went that And why is that? Why does it fail? Because human nature is evil. Let's get that in our heads, people. The Bible has told us that from time immemorial. The imaginations of man's heart is only evil continually. And because of that, you have to maintain a strong government presence to restrain the hand of evildoers. If you don't, just goodbye. You're going to have problems. And, uh, 
There are many people today who ignore that dictum, that axiom of human nature, and, and then they wonder, oh, I wonder why crime has increased. Please, don't even, don't even pretend, okay? You ought to be able to understand that. Very easy. All right, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. See, it all does go back to the Bible, doesn't it? Yeah, you have to restrain sin because if you don't restrain sin because the sentence against evil doing is not executed speedily, the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Where did I get that? Not from a president, from a former king named Solomon in Ecclesiastes. That's just how it is. Uh, That is just the way that it is in this world. End of chapter 8 in Matthew I want to talk about two segments of this section of this text tonight. Uh, and the first of them is in starting in verse number 23. Verse number 23, where the text of Scripture says this, Now, when he, Jesus, got into a boat, his disciples followed him. There's a key word. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Think back with me to what we looked at in the last section where there were several people who talked to the Lord and said, hey, I'm going to follow you, but I'll follow you, but. And the Lord said, no, no buts about it. Okay, let the dead bury their dead. Uh, I don't have any place to lay my head. And we looked at that one in Luke 9, the parallel passage this morning at the end of Luke 9 that had similar, uh, the same thing. And then one extra um, man came with another question. He had to go and greet those in his home, and the Lord said, no, don't look back. Don't, don't put your hands to the plow and looking back because you're going to you know, veer off to the side of your plow uh, you know, furrow there. And he is talking in, in key terms here about following him. Uh, a certain person came and said, I will follow you, and then the Lord said, follow me. And then his disciples followed him into the boat. You think there's a connection between the two passages? And remember what he said when he, in that earlier part of the chapter, when you, if you follow, you're going to have difficulties, right? This was what we discussed this morning in Sunday school about the cost or rather the difficulties of discipleship. He said there are going to be difficulties and this passage we're looking at now with the wind and the waves and all that is not really about wind and waves. It's about the Lord and about following him. And the disciples followed, but as soon as they followed, what happened? Difficulties. Difficulties came. It wasn't easy for them. They had a very, very big difficulty that came upon them in this uh, circumstance. So in following, they found themselves in one of those seemingly costly situations that we thought about in the prior section. Following Christ may lead some of our brothers and sisters into difficult straits of various sorts. In fact, all those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Be of good cheer, the Lord said. In the world, however, you will have 
tribulation. There's just no way around it. Their faith would now be tested as to whether they would believe this man, this man who cleanses lepers, first part of the chapter, who cures paralyzed, tormented people, who heals fevers, who casts out demons. They are going to be tested to see if they will believe that he can save them from the raging sea. The situation for them suddenly became dire. A thunderstorm or a windstorm popped up. It kicked up some high waves. Suddenly, it says, a great tempest arose. It's like one of those things where the, you know, they're sailing merrily along, and then all of a sudden, the skies grew dark, the air temperature changed, everything began to feel different, the winds whipped, and then waves started to come, and they got bigger and bigger and bigger in a very short amount of time. Maybe not seconds or microseconds here, but minutes. Things changed within just a few minutes' time. For those of us who are land lovers, we would expect this to be terrifying. Terrifying. Go to, go to YouTube sometime or some other place online and look for a video of a shipping. And you look at a ship cam uh, or and, and maybe put in the search you know, waves, and you see some of these freighters that are going through waves that are just like unreal. We can ask uh, Thurman afterwards. Maybe he'll tell us a story or two about riding a few waves. Fun, isn't it, brother? Sickening, yes. Even for those with cast iron stomachs, it can get to be a bit of a problem, can't it? The waves were swamping the boats. And by the way, land lubber, that's a funny term. Land, L-U-B-B-E-R. And I looked that up. Uh, a lubber, a lubber was a clumsy oaf first, and it became to mean somebody who was bad at sailing. <laughs> the word basically then came to mean an inexperienced seaman. You land lovers, you don't know how to, you don't know how to handle a boat. You don't know what to do on a boat, a uh, sailing ship or a uh, motor-powered uh, vessel. So for those of us, we would expect this to be terrifying. For the disciples, you might wonder, well, why are they so scared? Haven't they been on the, on the sea, you know, all their lives fishing? Well, maybe there are two, two, two explanations. They may have been experienced enough to know that they were in great danger. I mean, even experienced seamen get into trouble sometimes. You know, uh, boats like the Edmund Fitzgerald do succumb to the ravages of nature. They just simply cannot structurally withstand the, the ravages that are being, you know, the, the strength that's being poured out upon them. I don't know if you ever thought about whatever happened to that boat. Oh, it's just a terrifying story. Just terrifying to think of those 29 men on that boat. But that boat may likely have been on, well, it was on Superior, but may have been thrown to the top of a huge wave and just cracked in half, just snapped in half. Amazing. Yeah, 15 miles or 15 yards. It doesn't matter when you're in seas like that. You could just be swamped. And These men were either experienced enough to know that they were in danger or maybe they were experienced enough to know that they shouldn't have gone on the boat at this time of day, night, month, whatever. Like the Lord said, look, we're going. 
And they said, well, I hope the weather doesn't change. We'll hopefully make it across because it's not good timing because of the weather or whatever. I don't know. It doesn't tell us the answer to that. Um, but they knew that they were in a problem. Now, there are geographical reasons for this kind of weather there where they were. The Sea of Galilee is actually situated 692 feet below sea level. Can you imagine that? 43 miles to the north, there is a Mount Hermon, which is, rises to over 9,000 feet, and it's snow-covered. Cold air, low, high, warmer air. What happens when that cold air decides to rush down that mountain and come in that corridor and you've got this whipped uh, environment of the atmosphere coming? That's what happens on the Sea of Galilee. Temperature differentials, air moving dramatically in such situations like that. Whatever this situation is or however we speculate about it. The point is that the disciples thought, in fact, they knew they were going to die. They just knew they were going to die. They were, you know, they were writing their little last notes, you know, love you, honey, kind of thing, and put it in the bottle, right? And I hope it makes it home. Meanwhile, the text tells us Jesus was sleeping. Now, why was he sleeping? I don't believe he was sleeping just to make a mockery of the disciples. I believe he was sleeping because he was tired. John chapter 4 and verse number 6, it says, After a long journey, Jesus had come to the well at Sychar, uh, Jacob's well, and he was wearied. And he sat down and he spoke then to the woman at the well, as we know in John chapter 4. But he was a real, live, living human being with a human body and the frailties thereof. He would be tired in his body and hungry at times, and he was tired at this point, not faking it just to make an object lesson. So he was sleeping. A testimony, or a testament maybe we should say, to his calmness even in the midst of a storm like that. And the disciples appealed to him. He came, they came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. Now, I doubt if they had to come very far. I mean, it's not like they were on some 300-foot freighter in the... Uh, Sea of Galilee. They appealed to the right man for the job, didn't they? They felt that Jesus could help them, but their faith was weak. It was a little faith, not a big faith. Now, sometimes in the Bible, uh, when you talk about a little faith, that's good. You have faith as a mustard seed, a small faith in the big object of God, then that's good. But other times in the Bible, we are rebuked for having a little faith faith. We should have a larger faith. And that's the case here. Of course, our faith has to be in the right object. In this situation, he says to them, oh, you of little faith, what he's saying is your faith is too little. It's too little. It reflects back to uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 30. And there it says in Matthew 6, 30, now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith, of little faith? So, mm, the difficulty of little faith. They knew they needed saving. They knew that they were going to die. 
They knew Jesus could help them, but it seems that their knowledge of needing saving and almost being ready to die was stronger than their knowledge of Jesus being able to help them and keep them. And the fact was that there was no reason to panic, but they were panicked because of the situation. The Lord stood up, and he told the winds and the waves to stop, and it stopped. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? I mean... Right now, there's air flowing through this room, and it's going in behind me here in the air intake, and there's a fan motor. It's about that big around, that long, with a big belt. It's hooked to this squirrel cage fan system. And the Lord could say to that system, stop, and whether the electricity was cut off or the belts broke or the, or the machine I mean, you can't even imagine the power that it would take for somebody to be able to speak and say to stop to this fan motor here. We're talking about stopping waves on a multi-square-mile area of wind probably rushing down from Mount Hermon 40 miles away, stirring up these multi-foot-high waves that are about to swamp the boat. The water stills, the winds stop. You just can't do this. Except God can do this. Christ did this. It's just amazing. Now this is quite a bit opposite of what happened when Jonah was asleep in a boat. How did he get the winds and the waves to stop their raging? Oh, he had to get pitched overboard and thrown in so that the Lord would be propitiated, basically, and uh, would stop uh, on this boat to satisfy God's wrath against his disobedience. The men in our boat here know that this was not a lucky coincidence. They knew the Lord spoke, and this guy uh, was able to stop the winds and the waves. They did stop. They were convinced the forces of nature had listened to Jesus and obeyed. That was very abnormal. The supernature power that was possessed by this man was beyond description. How is it even possible? How could the word of a man affect wind energy, air motion, temperature, sloshing water, and that over many square miles? The sheer energy, the kinetic energy of those particles, every one of them moving up and down and back and forth and all of that, I mean... I don't even know how to express what that would be in you know, terajoules of energy or something. I mean, would that even be realistic? I have no clue. You know, you think of the power of a thunderstorm. The weight of, of the, the mass of H2O that is held suspended in the atmosphere and then dumped when the rain comes. That's nature's power, and the God of nature says, stop. One application of this passage is that Jesus has full authority over the powers of nature. The imaginary gods such as Triton and Poseidon cannot really control the ocean's waves, but Jesus Christ did in fact do so. We have here eyewitness account of him doing that. Triton and Poseidon, what are they? But figments of the human imagination, perhaps enabled by demons 
but they are not real gods of the sea at all. The Lord of heaven and earth is the God of the sea. Jonah told the men that on the boat. They said, Who, what, what is your God? Well, the God that made heaven and earth and the seas and all that. And they're like, oh boy, this is the God that made the seas. We're at his mercy. You know, they were very superstitious. There's a God for everything. The disciples close our section here by saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? They were stunned as we are as we think about what he did. And I wonder if we might deduce the correct answer to their question from some other portions of Scripture. Let me share some with you. Who is this man who obeyed, who was obeyed by the seas like this? Psalm 65. I'm going to try to go through these fairly rapid fire. Psalm 65, verse number 5. By awesome deeds and righteousness you will answer us, O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far-off seas, who established the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power, you who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. This is the God of our salvation who stills the seas. Psalm 89, verse 8. 89 and verse number 8. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You, this is the Lord again, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Wow. Sounds like the Lord Jesus is saying something by doing this, isn't he? He is this one who stills these seas. Psalm 107. Psalm 107, verse 23. This is a more lengthy passage. One hundred seven twenty three. those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens, they go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Job 38, 8 to 11. Job 38 and God's questions. Job 38. Is that what I'm thinking? Yes. Job 38. Who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, this far you may come but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. A few chapters on in the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples are more aware of whom they're following. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. 
But at this earlier point, they're still processing through this and trying to figure this out. By the way, it's not so amazing that Jesus stilled the storm when according to the psalm, one of the ones we read there, he's the one that created the storm. He started it. He finished it. But these men were finding out that Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 or 23 actually was true, that it was God with us who was there in their midst. Emmanuel was there. You see? Who is this man? Well, it's God with us. That's who it is. That's who it is. Yep. Well, let's uh, put that one behind us for the moment and uh, think about the next uh, passage. Two demon-possessed men are healed. When they had come to the other side, or when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, my text says, some have uh, perhaps the Gadarenes, there met two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them there was a herd of many swine feeding. And so the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. The prior section showed Jesus' supernatural power over the natural realm. This section shows his supernatural power over the supernatural realm. Even powerful forces in that supernatural realm. Here we have a straightforward report of the Lord speaking and demons obeying his command. Now, demon possession is still real today, but I don't go looking for it, you know, or go online or in person or anything, but I have heard accounts from people at demon possession and devil worship exists in our culture and I've had a number of personal experiences with knowing of people or seeing them or seeing things that they do that are basically demon worship, devil worship. It's real. The six things that go on in the world are largely explained by human depravity by itself, but there are just some things that are so systematic, so deep, so wicked, so diabolical that you can hardly wonder, so debauched, is that something more going on behind the curtains than meets the eye? Here we have the Lord's miraculous work. Now, there are many other events that were like this. Uh, in Matthew 9, the Lord uh, removed a demon, we'll see, and the Pharisees criticized him, saying that he was removing demons by the power of Beelzebub, a very evil thought. Matthew 12 has the same. Matthew 15, a Jew and Gentile issue comes to the forefront. 
you know, you have a, a Gentile asking for help, and the Lord says, well, I've been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Um, then you have Matthew chapter 17. The disciples could not complete the healing because prayer and fasting were required. Two particularly poignant ones of, of uh, situations, rather, of demon exorcism are in Matthew 15 and 17, where one, there's a daughter, two, there's a son, children in the home who are troubled by these demons. What a terrible, terrible situation. And Jesus faces off here against a host of demons inside of two men, and the text tells us that he permitted them to enter a herd of pigs. Mark, rather, Mark 5 tells us that there were 2,000 her uh, swine in this herd, perhaps indicating 2,000 demons. We don't know that for sure, but that's a lot of swine. Their name was Legion, for they were many, they said. Afterward, the, the men in whom they were re- restored to normal health and mental function. But notice here you have a man, single person, Jesus, facing up two men, who are backed by 2,000, say, more or less, demons. And Jesus, with no apparent effort, in one fell swoop, with one word, go, commands them. They recognize their authority, don't they? They, There was no way. In fact, they they said, uh, have you come to torment us before the time? They know that there's a time coming in which they will have to be punished for their departure from God. That time in which they will be also cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. That lake of fire, by the way, Matthew 25 says, was prepared for the devil and his angels, these demons. That's what that lake of fire is prepared for. So they knew they had, you know, they were going to have to do something here to obey the Son of God who came before them. There's just no way that they could, they could oppose his power. With one word, he can just dispatch them. Now, the text is not very explicit, but it seems that the demons preferred the death of the swine them going into the swine and dying as they did, they preferred that to being cast into torment right away. Why? It's a very odd thing. The devil always likes death and destruction, doesn't he? So, you know, they knew Jesus could command them and they would be forced to obey whatever he said, go into torment now or, or whatever. They indicated that the timing was somewhat premature, knowing that there would be a time which would, they'd be judged severely. But they preferred some measure of freedom. Perhaps in killing the pigs, the demons could be kind of released from those bodies of those swine and be freed from them and go back to their own normal realm, whatever that entails. I do not know. It's not my business to know. I'm no expert in that. I'm not going to become one. But that's what they wanted. And can you sense a little bit of even, I don't know if you want to say, Un, un, unworthy favor that God, that Jesus gave them. He didn't have to do that, did he? Why did he do that? I guess I would say maybe this way, long-suffering. You could wish that the Lord would not be long-suffering at all with the demons. But then if he weren't long-suffering with them, he might not be 
long-suffering with some others who need the long-suffering characteristic of God. After this happened, the people who were the keepers of the swine fled. They went into the city and told everything that had happened. And then the whole city came out to Jesus and they begged him to depart from their region. Well, that's a fine how do you do, isn't it? As they say, what a, what a thing is that? They weren't friendly to Jesus at all. Either they're upset at, you know, they just lost their pork chop dinner for about the next two years, or why were they keeping swine anyway? Well, there must have been a lot of Gentile influence there on the other side of the, of the lake. But uh, they were f- either that, you know, the prophet, just the mere greed of it, or they were fearful of a man with this kind of authority. They all knew about these two guys. You know, everybody knew you don't go over there because that's where they live, so you go way around that area. And the Lord cleaned that all up. They didn't want to be accountable to him at all. Now, one final note on this. Christians should not at all be fearful that they can be indwelt or overpowered by demons. Christ has so much more authority than those demons, that not even 2,000 demons can keep you from Christ. You know, When I read passages like this, I, I reflect sometimes on the truth that with this kind of power, the Lord can help us in any circumstances that we find ourselves. There is nothing that is too hard for God. God is able. He is able. He is able. I know that he is able, far beyond able, in fact. He may help us in the circumstances that we're in, or he may help us out of the circumstances that we're in. But he most certainly will help us in those circumstances. The former, uh, being helping us in them, may in fact be harder than helping us out of them, but he can do that. Uh, We know 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that no temptation is seized on us except such as is common to man. God is faithful. He'll not allow us to be tempted more than we're able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. He will help us. He will cause us to endure, and he will provide a way of escape. He's sympathetic to that. He's been tempted himself. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 tells us, right? He's a sympathetic high priest. He knows our weaknesses. Jesus has the kind of power needed to help you, and he's ready to use it on your behalf. He arose from the dead, and he will raise up all the dead. He's at the right hand of God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the sovereign potentate, and he rules over everything, even 2,000 demons, even over nature, even over disease like bacteria and viruses, even over tormenting paralysis. Why do we not believe him in our stormy seas? Often our troubles are very gentle. The Waves are small, the difficulties are light, and we still do not have peace. Are we too of too little faith? Challenge you with those words tonight. Think about that and ask God, as the disciples did, increase our faith. Help us. Dear God in heaven, through Christ we come to you and we ask that you would increase our faith. That though we have little troubles, that we will not be overcome by them, that we will not panic or fear, 
but that we will trust you in the midst of them. Lord, whether it's a health challenge, whether it's some emotional uh, fit that we're having at the moment, uh, whatever it might be, Lord, help us to not be said to have too little faith. May our actions not be driven by too little faith. May they be driven by much faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I trust that you'll have a good night tonight. God bless you. Thank you for watching online if you're there this evening. No idea who's there, how many of you there are, but we trust that you also have been profited by our study this evening. Thank you. Good night. Amen.